Welcome to Women Disrupting, a podcast amplifying the voice of women who are disrupting the status quo to create a more equitable, united and peaceful world. I am delighted to have Emma Shepherd as a guest today. Emma is founder of the Maternity Teacher Paternity Teacher Project, the UK's charity for parent teachers. Emma recognised that there was a lack of support for teacher parents in the education sector and set up this charity to offer a range of support services which range from networking, coaching, professional development, as well as support and entitlements for pregnant and expectant staff. With Emma's visioning and innovation, she is paving the way for more family and life-friendly schools, making teaching a sustainable career choice for all. Regardless of the sector you work in, everyone can learn something from Emma on how to create more cohesive workplaces that are family and life-friendly. Emma, thank you for joining me today. Share a little bit about your background up until the point when you founded MTPD. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Yasmin. It's a real pleasure. And as I've probably mentioned before, I could talk about MTPD um, until I'm blue in the face. So always a lovely opportunity to to be given that platform. Um, So I'm 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 a qualified English teacher. I came out of university, did my degree, I did a gap year and pre and post university. So started my teacher training through Teach First. Um, when I was about 23, I trained to teach in Watford. It was a two very challenging <laughs> years, but um, really um, aligned with my sort of heart in terms of um, the belief that education is a real equaliser and that um, all children, regardless of who they are, where they come from, uh, are entitled to a really high quality edu- of education. I still really believe in the Teach First mission and the idea that education is is one of the most important things that we can we can offer our society and offer our children if we want to work towards an idea of equality. So I trained to teach first for two years and then I still had quite an urge to travel and honestly <laughs> needed a bit of a recovery period after after training through Teach First. So went and worked in Vietnam in an international school for two years and I don't think I had any intention of staying international forever when I went out but I think the idea of teaching internationally and and having that circuit available to to discover the world whilst also doing something that I love and and being paid for it was very appealing whilst I was in Vietnam so I taught there for two years um, did lots of traveling and met my what is my now husband and he was very quickly moved and based in Singapore with his job so I was back and forth between Ho Chi Minh and Singapore um, and North Australia at, at times as well. Um, and then uh, we were based in Singapore together, married for about six months, uh, during which time I did a lot of yoga. I drank a lot of smoothies. I swam a lot during the day. I was quite bored um, and I did a um, some volunteering. So that was a real point in my life where I was very much drawn back to sort of what is my purpose? What am I doing? <laughs> where am I going? Um, and my husband got the opportunity to, to set up his own business in the UK. And I actually was jumped at the chance uh, to come back and, and began working in a, a school in South London, a Harris Federation school, um, as a lead practitioner in English. And at the point that I joined my Harris school, 
it was it had recently been taken over so was in the process of rapid change which comes with all sorts of joys and challenges by the time i left in in 2021 it was a fantastic fantastic place to work behavior and, and teaching and learning was just very stable um we got to a point where the curriculum was a joy to teach the students knew us expectations were high and withheld and it was it was a lovely lovely community to work in um, and it was a real wrench actually to to leave because it was really a place where that my sort of desire to to work in a context where I felt like my teaching was was making a significant social difference was met and I didn't have to battle through very disruptive behavior because of the systems that the school put in place in order to 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 make sure that we were able to teach but I had my two children when I was at Harris Morden and that's that brings us to the point of, of MTPT project because about a year and a half, two years into starting at Harris, I had my, my son in 2016. What's interesting then is you weren't in a school that was horrible to work in. It was quite a nice place. So what triggered you then to, to leave and set up mm. MTPT? Mm. Well, so I didn't leave to set up MTPT. The charity in 2016 it wasn't fully established. We didn't have charity status until 2020. So initially in sort of between 2016 to 2018, when I went on leave again with my, my daughter, it was very much a bit of a, a side network, a side hustle, a hobby, a curiosity that I was sort of building up into a little bit of a, a project as and that's why I sort of named it a project was because it was it was enjoyable at this at the same time as being really interesting and motivating in terms of the things that we were experiencing and, and learning about the motherhood penalty so it wasn't until 2020 that I actually dropped a day at a week at school to to dedicate to the MTPT project because it had grown to a point where it was becoming difficult to serve the needs of the community and do my middle leadership role at school and also be present and you know able to spend time with my family so it was, there was a sort of there was a moment of tension essentially when I was on my telephone too much I was on my laptop too mm. much I was meeting the needs of everybody else first rather than my own children and, and my husband and, and my own needs to a certain extent as well so requesting to drop down to four days meant that I could be my lead, do my lead practitioner role and do the MTPT project and have a sense of boundaries so that when the end of the day came, I would say stop and I would give my give myself to to my children, my husband or, or myself, because it's really important that we don't just become servants of everybody else in these pursuits. And then in 2021, following the lockdown, my husband is French. We met internationally. We actually promised each other that we would never live in each other's country, that we would always sort of live in a in a third country, as it were. That that rule went out the window when we came to the UK. But it had always been on the cards for us as a family to to raise our children bilingually, biculturally. And and up until that point they'd had no understanding of their French heritage other than through their father and, and speaking to their father and their cousins and, and grandparents. And the, the fact is the quality of life that we can offer them here is far higher than the quality of life that we were able to offer them in central London. So we, we made the decision to, to move and it was incredibly difficult because I loved my job. I love London, but it's true that what we've got here is, is better for us as a family. Mm -hmm. Summarize what MTPT is for 
any listeners who haven't come across it before. So we are the UK's charity for parent teachers. At our basic level, we are a network for teachers when they become parents of information sharing, of um, role modeling, of inspiring stories, of a, of a space to ask questions and to celebrate and to connect. We also offer coaching programs and return to work workshops for uh, teachers and educators when they become parents and uh, return to work and, and balance family life with teaching life. Um, but we also work more systemically in terms of providing training for schools uh, and trusts and unions and through various other networks um, to, to create working conditions that are compatible with uh, working parents and their needs um, as a retention measure and as a gender uh, equality measure and as a teacher wellbeing measure. But we also this year have begun some campaigning work aimed at the DfE and aimed at government level, asking the question, can teaching be a sustainable career choice and sharing the lessons that we've learned from our parent teacher community to, to build a manifesto that says, well, if we want it to be sustainable, this is the things that we need to to enable teachers to work, you know, alongside their lives rather than make work their lives to the point at which mm they they can't sustain that any further and, and that point often is when children come along and there's something else that is non-negotiable in their lives that has to be attended to and do we have an answer to that question can teaching be a sustainable pro profession for parents we do if it comes to the proviso the answer is yes in the right mm -hmm. circumstances mm -hmm. and with the right in the right school context so there's a certain amount of work that that schools need to do in their in their individual you know organizations to create these family friendly or these life friendly environments and many many schools do that um, and and interestingly those schools that are life friendly get along you know quietly and happily doing their thing and their staff are happy and, and off they go and, and they don't tend to you know make the social media headlines or mm -hmm. or the the sort of um conference headlines because they are just happy doing what they're doing and and, and doing common sense leadership things that that keep their staff happy and their students happy there are lots of schools who who don't do that and where it's very difficult to work as a parent teacher but there's also some things that that are needed from government to improve conditions that that schools no matter how well intentioned they are or, or how stable they are or how compassionately they are led schools can't necessarily control those things so yes <laughs> In the right context but there are still many many contexts where parents feel that they are they are made to choose between their profession yeah. and their families well that's a hopeful message so mm -hmm. share some of the things that schools are doing mm -hmm. that you think are supporting parents in sustaining teaching as a profession and balancing the caregiving with the very very tough job i think the the, the biggest commonality is compassion and understanding from leaders uh, that's that's huge obviously but what that can look like in concrete terms can be flexibility and i know that flexible working and part-time working is big on on the sort of educational agenda at the moment but there's there's nuance within that in terms of, of how helpful it is it's definitely helpful for for parents in the early mm -hmm. stages but what we hear um from our from our life friendly schools is more that the, the flexibility and the understanding around flexibility so you know colleagues who are working full-time but know that if they ask for 
the afternoon off to go to their child's nativity. That will be granted with joy. Colleagues who might work full time, but they also know that if they receive a phone call from their child's nursery that says they have to go, they will be rushed out the door. You know, absolutely off you go. That's the most important thing. We'll sort, we'll sort your lessons out. Colleague flexibility in terms of formal arrangements, like the logistics in the morning are difficult for you to manage. So why don't you come in for nine o'clock when you start teaching instead of mm-hmm. eight o'clock? But also that that flexibility in terms of, yes, formal part-time working arrangements all the way up to, to leadership level. We see that sort of most effectively done in schools where men as well as women are a part of that flexible working arrangement. So flexibility isn't just a way for women to and mothers to do it all it's a way of all of the staff in the in the school making decisions that work for them and their families where else do we see schools doing it really well workload and sensible approaches to workload particularly where changes are managed with a long-term vision in mind rather than a knee-jerk reaction so curriculum changes or changes to policies and processes leaders who understand that that doesn't need to happen within a week or within a term and that that can be part of a longer term process leaders who do whatever it is that needs to be done in their context to retain staff and therefore enable stability within their staff bases because staff turnover creates disruption it creates workload it creates instability that actually the parent-teacher community particularly in the early years of parenting find very challenging as the schools do do really well they have great hr systems with hr leads who know exactly the nuts and bolts of things like shared parental leave how much maternity pay is needed they have supportive return to work and processes for colleagues when they return from parental leave they have a sense of camaraderie and loyalty Mm -hmm. camaraderie so so these things these things are quite difficult to to measure i suppose in in some respects but the sort of building blocks of things like flexible working, flexibility, policies that don't penalise working mothers, policies that provide equality between mothers and fathers and non-birthing partners, sensible approaches to workload, long-term approaches to change and and stable staffing are things that, that are really helpful in these life-friendly, family-friendly schools. And it is great that you've got some evidence within your community of schools doing this, but there are a set of schools not doing this. Mm. What, 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 what are the reasons behind schools not getting on board with these kind of things? I think we have to show some compassion to our school leaders <laughs> that it's very difficult to think strategically and long term when you're constantly firefighting and from the moment that you step into the building and, and potentially, you know, beforehand there are emergencies or parents or behavior incidents or um, more pressing things that need their time and attention and then the day comes and goes and actually these leaders also do need some some element of self-care for themselves you know they need to sleep they need to eat they need to exercise they need to spend time with their own families so I think the way that education is set up at the moment for many schools means that leaders don't have the time or the thinking space to get beyond the immediate or short term and some of the things that we're talking about are Mm long-term measures um, to create the stability that schools schools are lacking so i suppose that's that's one reason short term takes precedent over long term Mm -hmm. Um, i think that there are 
there are sort of leadership attitudes either who don't have first-hand experience of, of many of the things that our community are dealing with so they they have not been mothers for example um, and even uh, those who have been fathers have had very different experiences from from the the parents in our community but even then there's that sort of lack of experience and so even if they want to do well by their staff they don't necessarily always know where to start or they haven't even thought about it but there's also the the sort of stalwart attitude and we we see this quite a lot amongst mother leaders of i had to deal with it that's just the way it is yeah suck it up and get on with it um so that's <laughs> discouraging but i think really um indicative of it you know leadership or resistant leadership attitudes in this area are not gendered because yeah. um, a lot of our research participants you know talk about their leaders being really positive and 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 helpful and and wonderful and supportive and they are men and maybe they are fathers maybe they're not fathers um but they they understand the pragmatism of it um so it's not necessarily a gendered issue it's a leadership mm -hmm. style issue why else funding some of these things cost money that schools don't really don't have or feel like they don't have so there's anxiety over funding or um anxiety over perceived costs even if those costs um, aren't there yet or might not be there. There's a, maybe a misguided focus on the, the martyrdom of doing it for the children, going the extra mm -hmm. mile, being married to the school and that sort of attitude of education being a, a calling rather than a job in the same you know, way that maybe we would, we would see the military as, as, yes. as a lifestyle. And the, the disconnect between, well, if we want to put the students first, the vehicle for putting the students yeah. first is the staff. So if we don't look after the staff, then we won't look after the students. But in those sort of contexts, leaders maybe have the expectation that, that staff should be superheroes. And, and, and there's maybe that sort of superhero leadership complex of, I do everything for the kids. Therefore, everybody should, who works for me should do everything for the kids as well. You know, stop at nothing that's just not sustainable for most human beings yeah. so you end up with a school that's staffed by younger staff or staff who for whatever reason are able to commit themselves entirely to their role and sometimes those are parents but they potentially have a lot of support at home so they're not necessarily um, taking on all the weight of parenting themselves or maybe even an equal weight of parenting themselves or they're simply staff that don't necessarily have the, the additional commitment of children. There must be some kind of pushback. So I think it was Stella Creasy who used the term motherhood penalty. She got mm. a lot of backlash saying things along the lines of, do you think your children were a burden? And I know that you use that term a lot and women ed use it a lot because it is a reality. So do you get pushback like that? And if so, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I mean, the, the Stella Creasy case, and I think what the the response from Pregnant and Screwed actually was really helpful because it's very factual. Yes. That phrase, the motherhood penalty, doesn't mean motherhood is a punishment. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it can feel that way. <laughs> but can't everything, can't everything, you know, running exactly. feel like a punishment sometimes. And, and people still love running. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very specific sociological phrase that describes the penalties that women... Um, receive in the workplace when they become mothers because of the contextual 
um, factors in our in our Western society definitely of our expectations around work, unpaid labour, childcare responsibilities. So it's very specifically about the pay gap that comes with motherhood, the perception of commitment to roles that comes with motherhood, the occupational or the lack of occupational mobility and career stagnation that is often associated with motherhood and the, the likelihood of working part time in order to maintain roles in the workforce whilst also taking on the majority of the caring and the domestic responsibilities. So that the, the motherhood penalty as a phrase is a very specific mm -hmm. phrase to describe a sociological phenomenon. And we see it in teaching. So um, it's, it's what essentially leads up to the gender pay gap in teaching and, and contributes significantly to our disproportional representation of women in leadership. Um, it's, it's the motherhood penalty in action. So we, I suppose we don't necessarily see it as addictively as we saw in that Stella Creasy example, because she has far more followers than us, she's far more public figure than us, and therefore the trolls, you know, far more vicious and aggressive, but that the sort of undertones of the attitude, the, the gendered attitudes of who should be at home, who should be at work, and who should be doing what as parents, it feeds into any narrative around parenting and and that is very restrictive because it works for some people and it does not work for anybody and anytime we start talking about restrictive or closed in narratives around how people should be or behave because of their identity you're in dangerous ground there so it's the same when we talk about children's identity in terms of their gender little boys should do x little girls should do y um and it's when we talk about sort of marriage if you are in this sort of relationship you should be entitled to get married if you're in this sort of relationship you it's just dangerous ground and it's very restrictive because it means that people aren't able to live their full selves and we see that absolutely in the in the mtpt project community in terms of um, don't worry about work or professional development whilst you're on leave because you should be enjoying these precious moments with your baby. And the fact is that there's a very clear understanding from those people who are making comments like that about what, what enjoying those precious moments looks like. But the fact is that, that myself and many members of the MTP project community, the most precious moments that I've enjoyed with my children have been moments where I have been intellectually stimulated and they mm -hmm. have been happy. So being at museums and being at conference events with them and having them, you know, cooed over by conference delegates was I have also really enjoyed a session or, or a networking opportunity. So we get that that backlash, we get it less than we used to because our work is quite wide ranging in terms of celebrating and supporting choice and standing up for legal entitlements and the, the, the wants that come from that choice. So we are a celebratory of, of colleagues who want to completely switch off and go into the vapor bubble and then come back to work after 12 months or after a career break. We support them in, in doing what works for them and, and getting back into the workforce if that is what they want. And we as supportive of that option as we are of teachers who, you know, within the first week or three week of baby's uh, arrival are saying, oh, I'm going to start a PhD or I'm going to start my MPQSL or I want to come on a coaching program so that I can figure out what my, you know, progression to, to leadership looks like now that I've got, got baby. Yeah, that the choice is what's important to us. When you do speak with women who have gone on maternity leave, what would you say is the most common barrier or challenge that they face? The intersect between 
their mindsets and assumptions and the, the real barriers that are presented by their schools or their employers or society. So what I mean by that, for example, Yasmin, is we have so many participants, mums and dads, who have, an, have a, a socially constructed assumption of, of, of what they're supposed to be doing at the minute. And when you turn around and say, <clears throat> forget should, what do you want to do? That opens up a whole load of freedoms that they can then go to their organisation um, and say, I want this and I want that and I want the other. How can we make this work? And their organisation meets them there and says, brilliant, we can give you all of those things and, and everybody flourishes. But if those assumptions and internal restrictions are not lifted, then the shoulds, the musts, the have tos remain in place and the barriers are self-inflicted. If, however, you've got somebody who is very liberal minded and, and knows exactly what they want and is free from those assumptions or those stereotypes, those sort of internal restrictive narratives. And, and they go to their organization and say, this is what I want. And their organization says, like, you can't have that. Then obviously those, those barriers are going to present themselves. So it's, it's at that point of intersect mm -hmm. that the, the greatest challenges present themselves, I think, because in every situation, if I were to say, for example, there are there are not enough flexible working opportunities at leadership level, there would be as many examples of leaders working flexibly with young children who would who would trump that. If I were to say, you know, fathers not feeling that they are empowered to be involved in the early years of their children's lives, there would be, you know, a, a handful of examples of fathers who have not let that stop them, not let the finances or the the, the social <laughs> judgments that, that do unfortunately exist stop them and have just said, well, that was that's what I wanted to do and that's what worked for my family, so I did it. And I guess this is where coaching comes in because you offer mm -hmm. coaching, don't you, to your community. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a bit about how that is a tool used to empower parents mm -hmm. on mat leave or on return to work after mat leave or paternity mm -hmm. leave. Yeah, so we're both coaches, so obviously we're biased, but I, I honestly believe part of the reason that coaching is so important to the MTPG project and the core of our offer, I suppose, to, to our community is because when I was all the way through Teach First, we were offered a coach as, as very inexperienced teachers and through my both my maternity leaves, I had coaches thanks to Teach First. And, you know, those have been the most profound and liberating moments of my life when a, a coaching question has landed and just opened opened up opportunities and thinking in a way that I couldn't have Im imagined and, and given me such a sense of control and autonomy at, at moments where I felt completely trapped and completely stuck and there are <laughs> parenthood presents so many of those moments but also teaching presents so many of those moments of, of feeling like you you can't win or you can't move forwards or you can't push through and you're stuck in a system that is frustrating or disempowering so so the coaching that, that we offer because of our current matriarchal systems when it comes to to parent, parenting and leave predominantly mothers um but i think there's a real piece to do there around fathers and and coaching mindsets in terms of what they want from fatherhood rather than sticking with the status quo and doing you know being the breadwinner and going back to work and doing what dads inverted commas are supposed to do 
but our coaching can start anywhere from the beginning of leave to the, the sort of young family years. So we have programs that are offered throughout that throughout that journey. Um, and some people come to coaching having absolutely no idea what it is. And it can be a very emotive experience being given permission to think for yourself and do what you want for yourself is so powerful and, and humbling in many ways because we're primed I think as teachers to follow rules meet expectations do as we're told and, and then we're primed as parents to do all the right things for the safety of our baby and for the good of our baby we're primed as wives and partners to you know be good as daughters to be good to meet expectations in in all of those different identities and then the moment that at the most intense moment where you are being told by everybody around you how to live your life and, and do these things for somebody to say what do you want just it's it's, it's magical yes it really is it gives me goosebumps when you're speaking about it because i know that i've had moments like that in coaching sessions with my clients and some women have never been asked before mm. that question what do you want mm. incredible and especially at, at that parenting stage as well i've had clients say to me god nobody's listened to me for that long yeah. for ages it's just so nice to talk out loud isn't it and, and some of the loveliest coaching sessions are when you do some you do very little as a coach mm -hmm. apart from hold that space for clients to think out loud process their thoughts and get to that point where they go yeah that's it that's what i want that's the plan mm -hmm. and i can see it clearly now because within the moon you know of everything that's going on in your life the gift of that that space to just stop and think is really special. Yeah, no, definitely. And it really just captures the impact that you're having um, as a charity. If every sector had an MTPT, we'd be able to move this along on a wider scale. And I know that there are people who are interested in replicating and doing what you're doing, but obviously in a different sector. So what advice would you give to anyone who's listening who isn't perhaps even in the education sector, but would like to have something like you've got in mm. their sector, because obviously it's, it's, a, it's something that you've actually given up your full-time job for, and that might not be realistic for everyone. So mm. what are some of the ways they can go about this? Yeah, I mean, I think if this is something that you feel is really needed in your sector, the first question is to decide how far you want it to become your life's mission <laughs> because yeah. we were speaking Yasmin before the call about you know the MTPT project really is, is my first baby as it were and the idea of ever stepping away from it is very very complex to me because it, it we're at a point as a charity and as, as a startup that we you know we wouldn't exist were I not the the motor behind it so the first question is in in 10 years time what does this look like for you personally because it's it's a very exciting idea and you know sense of mission to change your industry or, or change circumstances for women at the outset but in the long run how much of that is is going to require sacrifice from you and your life and, and how much is that aligned with where you see yourself in the future and then i think the, the second thing i'd say was don't go in all guns blazing with the intention to to do something to 
the parents in your setting, go in with listening, collect information, collect experiences, create spaces where people can talk openly and honestly about the situations that they are facing, um, what's positive and, and what's challenging about those situations. Because if you don't understand your audience base, you're not going to be able to meet their needs and the things that you're going to do are going to, to misfire. And that takes, that takes time and that listening process, you know, it takes months, years, and then aligning that listening process, those sort of lived experiences with any sort of research base that you can find so that you can figure out whether the, there is research that supports and validates these experiences academically or in terms of the data, or whether there is a gap in the research and sort of stories or experiences that are not being told and not being shared. And that's something that we definitely found at the MTPT project was was a very clear voice beginning to, to develop of the experiences of parent teachers, but there was absolutely no research in 2016 that captured that experience and therefore validated it at policy level. And so that's why the research that we do is so important because we can get big data that says this is what's happening. Therefore, the, these are the changes that need to, to be put in place at individual, organizational or national level. Yeah. Um, and then once you've got that research and that insight, that's when you say the top five solutions here and what we can offer are is this. So for us, that was networking, the coaching spaces, the research that was needed, the training, and to, to a certain extent, the role modeling um, within the community and, and sort of opportunities for role modeling. That's really sensible advice. And what you've done is just really fantastic leadership skills and entrepreneurial skills as well that you've self-taught it's really inspirational I'm sure there's lots of listeners who are thinking that would be amazing but I just don't have the capacity or headspace for it so you're a woman and you're like I want a baby soon or you are pregnant and you're in a system that you know isn't flexible and going to accommodate you and you're concerned what would be a piece of advice you could give those source of listeners feel the fear and do it anyway that's a great susan jeffers moment mm. isn't it so it's a book if you want to go and read it very americanized but it's got some real gems in it and then the underlying sort of message is life is scary stuff does create anxieties you might be sitting in a position where you are sort of thinking about the future and thinking how is this how on earth is this going to work and therefore um you know making your world smaller before it necessarily needs to be so acknowledge that these things that might be scary yes you're not inventing it <laughs> it can yeah. all feel very overwhelming and intimidating it's true but through all of that see what it is that you want to do and do it anyway because a fulfilled life is going to be a happy life and babies that come into families where their parents are fulfilled and happy are going to be babies that thrive mm -hmm. And I think the most poignant thing that I hear, and I'm not at all saying that anybody who has made, feels they've made sacrifices are therefore parents to children that aren't thriving, <laughs> the babies aren't thriving. But I think the most poignant thing that we hear at the NTPT project is, I felt that I needed to make a choice, therefore I made this sacrifice and I regretted it. Or there is a sense of, you know, if we're really honest, there is a sense of resentment that I had to make these choices in order to have children or in order to commit to my family. And I wish I hadn't been put in that position or 
if I'd known what I know now, I would have done things differently. And, and the most concrete way that we see that is, is career progression in terms of, you know, I want to be a head of department, but I don't know if I can be a head of department and have children. Therefore, I won't be a head of department because I want to have children. And actually, there are you know thousands of heads of department that are very happy and and have babies. Or I can't be a head teacher and have a baby. So I'll be a head teacher for now and then I'll drop down and then I'll have a baby. Or I will not be a head teacher. Again, there are many, many, many head teachers who've taken periods of maternity or, or shared parental leave whilst in post. So don't don't allow uh, assumptions or fears to prevent you from doing what you want to do right now because the baby will come into whatever life you provide for it and if you are happy in that life then you know more chance of everybody being happy together yes there's always a way or another one that pops into my head is i want to change careers mm -hmm. but i want a baby soon so i'm gonna have to wait until this baby's born and mm -hmm. I take my mat leave in this secure job and then before you know it the baby's five six ten and, and you've not changed careers it's possible right absolutely absolutely and i mean there are obviously unfortunately because of the way that the system works um there are financial implications when it comes yes. to qualifying periods and clawback periods associated with maternity pay but and i suppose i have two responses to that in terms of the pay the first is if you are reinventing your life to work in a career that you feel will make you happier and still pay you <laughs> then yeah. eventually the pay will you know figure itself out in the long yeah. term or you know what what do we need money for and, and thinking in that more values-based way of what do you need and how much does that cost rather than how much do i need to earn or worrying about finances in that way um so you know i need happiness how much does that cost i need stability how much does that cost i need shelter how much does that cost i need uh cocktails on a friday night and time with my friends how much does that cost so, so thinking about the needs first rather than the money first but i was I, one of the the sort of most beautiful aspects of my relationship with with my children and with, with my son hugo in particular because he was my first was just this idea that he he's not a burden to me obviously there are um times in your life when children feel very heavy but he 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 wasn't a burden he was a sidekick and most happy participant in our adventures together and you know if i was going to take a train at seven o'clock in the morning to go to a women ed event who else would i want to have with me than my lovely lovely boy um, or, or my lovely, lovely Lucy to enjoy the train ride and the coffee and the, and the conversations at the school field together. If I'm going to change the world or the educational world through the MTPT project, who do I want to share that with more than the loveliest little people that I have brought into the world who, who think I'm a superhero and, you know, applaud me in all the things that I do or come and join me for my <laughs> Zoom presentations occasionally. Yeah, so I think if, if you're thinking of having a, having a big adventure professionally, baby isn't going to be a hindrance to that if you don't want them to be. Think of baby as 
your most happy companion celebrating that that reinvention and that adventure that mummy or daddy is having well that's such an inspiring reframe thank you for that i've not thought of it like that before and it's just comforting and, and hopefully reassuring to anyone who's listening who's thinking about that journey i wonder if you have the power to appoint a prime minister and it doesn't have to be someone who necessarily is a British citizen, someone who you think would really create systems and policies that are underpinned by the MTP values, who would you choose? I have to say my chosen prime minister would be the person who is making sensible, loving and realistic decisions on the behalf of our people, on the behalf of our most vulnerable to create a society that works harmoniously and, and inclusively. And I mean, we can see that in, in people like Lucinda Arden in, in New Zealand. She is a woman, but we can also see that in people like Obama, who is a man. So for me, it's not a gendered question. It's a, a question of approach or a question of leadership values. Obviously, we're all human, um, but I'd like to strive towards a society where my, my son feels that he is part of the team not the enemy yes definitely it's hard isn't it because young girls have felt like that i feel for so long like not part of the team and the enemy and we're at risk of flipping it so that it's the other way around and it's not about that i get what you're saying mm. so there still is a lack of diversity isn't there in leadership mm. um, and i guess what i'm trying to get at here is that's one reason to try and i was going to use the word push more women into leadership but that's the wrong verb inspire more women mm -hmm. into leadership mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right i mean when we look at the big part of the reason that that we do what we do is because we're very conscious of the big big picture statistics and and you know within education outside of education you look at the top and you, and you see you see men predominantly making the decisions not in all cases, but in the majority of cases. And, and those images that you do is just hurt. So the, the one that springs to mind for me is, is when the, the abortion bills were being changed in, in the, the, the United States and the people signing those abortion bills were, you know, dozens of white men making decisions about women's bodies. You know, those, those sorts of moments hurt hugely. And, you know, statistics on child marriage and, um, domestic violence, crimes against women, violence against women, they are stark and depressing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, I really, really, truly feel that the answer is with, with the communication and the, the cooperation and the, the working together and the collaboration mm -hmm. between genders. Um, so, you know, if, if, my, if my husband or my son is ever sitting at one of those tables, I want them to be the strong boy, voice to look around and go, yeah, we need to get Janine in, her, in here. Or, you know, why is Katie not at the table? Or, oh, did somebody forget to invite Veronica? I'll go and get her now. <laughs> you know, so that they are the ones opening the door or saying, this is not for me to make a decision about. This is for Cassie to make a decision about. Mm -hmm. um, knowing where their jurisdiction stops, depending on the context. 
Thank you so much, Emma, for your time. I am so grateful for you sharing everything about MTPT, and I just hope it inspires others to do similar or to just follow their, their heart, essentially, which I think is what you promote. If people wanted to find out more about MTPT, where do they go? So we have a website. It's www.mtpt, so Mike Tango, Papa Tango, .org.uk. We are on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at MTPT Project. We also have a book that's worth mentioning, isn't it? It's called A Guide to Teaching, Parenting and Creating Family-Friendly Schools. And you can get that on Amazon or on Rootledge. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. I'm always looking for disruptive women as guests. If you think you'd make a great guest or know anyone who would, then please email me with the details. You can email info at yasminarifcoaching.com. More details in today's show notes. Remember to show up and share your truth because the world is hungry for women who show up and tell the truth, unafraid and free, expanding to the very edges of who they were always meant to be.